morning. You know, I never know when, uh, when I come into the room where we are in the service. And I came in and Brian was praying and praying and praying and praying. <laughs> and I was looking for somebody who didn't have their head bowed to say, is he waiting for me to go on stage? <laughs> but it was just a sincere prayer that was long. So are my sermons. All right. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Luke 17. Luke 17, uh, 20 to 37. Let's ask God in a short word of prayer to thank our time. Bless our time. Father God, uh, we thank you that we can come to your inspired and errant word. I thank you for the time of music worship and now the time of word worship. And we pray that we would be enriched by both. Guide our time, we ask, in Jesus' name, amen. Robbie Richens was a member of the United States Air Force. He served in the first Gulf War in Iraq from 1990 to 91. He flew an amazing 300 sorties. And as soon as the war ended, he assumed that he and his crew would be asked to stay around, to fly additional sorties, to provide security, to do mop-up detail. And you can imagine his surprise when a superior came to him and said, tonight you and your crew are to fly home. You're to fly back to Hanscom Air Force Base in Massachusetts. Well, you didn't have to ask them twice. They were so excited to go back to home, back to their families. They packed up their gear, got in the flight, and they they flew home. Because they had uh, no time to call their families, they thought, you know what, we'll just drop in on our families. So they got home, they got in the van, they piled in the van, got all their gear, drove the long way back to western Pennsylvania. He arrived at his home at around 6.30, 6.45 in the morning. The sun was just rising, and and he could just see the house, and there on the garage was a big banner, Welcome Home Daddy. And he didn't understand. He thought, how is it possible? None of us called ahead. Nobody knew we were coming. It's not exactly like the Air Force to call on our behalf. How did they know I would arrive? And so he walked in the house, and the little ones came, and they're grabbing at his legs, and they're saying, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And his wife is in another room, and she comes running down the hall, and there's tears running down her face, and they embrace, and they kiss. And then he said, How did you know? How did you know I was coming? She said, Well, we didn't. We knew that the war was over, and we knew that you would be coming Sometime in a week, a month, maybe at the end of the year, maybe it would be many months, but we knew you were coming, so we decided we would be ready. We would have the house clean. We would have the refrigerator stocked. We would have a hot meal ready, and we would have the banner on the garage. We were going to be ready. Now, that's a pretty impressive family. I think we'd all agree. But the same thing is happening in our life. Jesus is coming back. The most important person, the God-man, is coming back. And we need to be ready. He tells us 
He will come imminently, which means at any moment. Is that moment right now? Maybe. Is that moment three millennia from now? Maybe. But we need to be ready because he's coming. He's coming back. I'd like to pick up in our text and read verses 20 to 23, the beginning of what we'll look at this morning. Being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, he, Jesus, answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here he is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out. Do not follow them. As you and I begin, I think we see a question that we can relate to. It's a question by the lay religious leaders, the Pharisees. It's a question to Jesus. It's the question of when. When is the king coming back? Now, it was ironic, wasn't it? Because they were talking to the king, but they didn't recognize him. So they said, when is the Messiah coming? We can relate fairly well, can't we? We look around at society and we say, when, Lord, when? We watch the evening news and we see what's happening in Syria. And we see children that are killed and maimed and are orphaned. And we say, when, Lord, when are you coming? We look closer to home, Washington, D.C. We see all sorts of political mess. Republican mess, Democrat mess, independent mess, socialist mess. We see a mess and we say, come Lord Jesus, come. We need you. We need you now. Come. We look in our own lives. Everybody is coming from a different point. Some of you today are coming from points in which life is not going that well. And you say, enough Lord. When Lord? Come Lord Jesus, come. Last Sunday after I preached the last Easter service and then had lunch with some family and friends, I got on a plane and I flew to Syracuse, New York. My parents were moving locally. They've been living since about 1980 in a house 4,500 square feet. They went down to 1,800 square feet. I was the cheap labor. If you think about the square footage, that means that two out of every five events or two out of every five possessions they own can fit. That means three out of five cannot fit. And so it became my job and my sister's job to say it won't fit. They have collected these things for 80 years. It won't fit. My dad's closet, I am not joking, He's a, a financial guy. I opened it up. I'm, I'm not lying. From floor to ceiling, wall to wall, front to back, no boxes, just papers. Just papers. And I went paper by paper with my dad while he sat on a chair and pretended he was still in the Navy and I was one of his recruits <laughs> telling me what to do. And the whole time I said, Lord, come, Lord Jesus, come. <laughs> you know that's how it went. 
And I don't blame them. You collect things for 80 years. And now you have to give three out of every five items up. It's a very difficult thing to do. So the Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask about the kingdom. And he takes this opportunity to tell them to tell us about the kingdom of God. Now understand that the kingdom of God is a rather difficult topic. The kingdom of God, called the kingdom of heaven, variously interchangeably used, is found all over the Gospels. In the Gospel of Luke, that phrase occurs in 27 different passages, just in the Gospel of Luke. If I were given the permission to alter the doctrinal statement of faith by the Evangelical Free Church and add one phrase, I would add the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. It's all over the Gospels. It's all over the epistles. And almost no doctrinal statement has it. And we don't know much about it. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is the rule, the sovereign rule of Christ on earth and through eternity. But it's not that simple. Think of what Jesus says today. He says in our text, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He's saying this to Pharisees who are longing for the Messiah. They want the Messiah to come because they want to overthrow the Romans, that they think the Romans have their boot on their collective necks, and they think the Messiah will rescue them. And Jesus says, the one you're waiting for, he's in the midst of you. But go back a few chapters in Luke chapter 10, and Jesus tells the disciples, the kingdom of God is near. Already tells them, it's in the midst of you. A little earlier, he says, it's near. You go to Mark chapter 14, very familiar passage. And Jesus makes this statement. He says, verily I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink of it again with you in the kingdom. He said that 2,000 years ago. So he says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is near. And the kingdom of God is coming and it hasn't arrived and we're 2,000 years later. Now how do you put all that together? Theologians talk about the kingdom as the already and not yet. Some of it has already occurred in our lives and some of it has not yet occurred. For instance... If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are already indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You are already sealed by the Holy Spirit, Ephesians chapter 1. Your salvation is guaranteed. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. You have already passed, Romans 6.13, from death into life. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We will never be condemned by God. That's already an accomplished a task. And yet, and yet you and I struggle because it's not all here. We struggle with sin. We struggle with temptation. We need to daily put on the armor of God. We need to daily ask God to develop his fruit within us. I love the way the Puritans thought of it. They divided the kingdom of God into two phrases. They said, it's the kingdom of grace and the kingdom of glory. 
These aren't two kingdoms. They're one kingdom with two time installments. The kingdom of grace is where you and I now live. We live in the age of grace. We live in the age in which you and I sin and we confess in the power of God's spirit. We turn or we repent and grace is showered upon us. Grace upon grace upon grace. But someday, sooner for some, further from others, someday we're going to be called from this earth and we will leave the kingdom of grace and go to the kingdom of glory. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And Jesus wants us to understand that's all part of the kingdom. The kingdom is his sovereign rule. He rules with a little distance while we're in the kingdom of grace. And he rules with great proximity when we're in the kingdom of glory. While we're in the kingdom of grace, we have the freedom to follow the Lord and his wisdom or follow the folly of the earth and suffer the consequences. But a time is coming when you and I will get to the kingdom of glory and there will be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more death. Those former things will pass away and we'll be in the presence of the almighty God. And so as he talks about the the kingdom, he wants to teach us a few principles about it. The first principle is in verses 21 to 23. He wants to teach us that when people are talking about the end times, they better be in book, chapter, and verse. There are so many prognosticators, so many end time gurus, so many self-proclaimed prophecy experts. And he says there will be people who say, it'll be here or go there. And he says, don't, don't go out with either one of them. Don't mess with those people. Unless they can give you a book, chapter, and verse, don't believe it. Because there will be many people who will tell you all sorts of things about the coming of Christ, the end times, and what it will be like in heaven, and it will not be from Scripture. Don't believe it. I think it happens all the time. Let me offer an example. I'll offer an example, and don't get mad. Listen to the whole example, then you won't be mad. But I think of Dr. Tim LaHaye's books. They're good books, Left Behind series. But they're historical fiction. You know that, right? They're historical fiction. They happen to be from my point of view, which is also Jesus' point of view. They are pre-trib, they are pre-millennial, but he wrote this much out of a half a dozen passages of Scripture. A half a dozen passages of Scripture. You know they're historical fiction, and yet people read them as the last word on the end times. And if we garner an application from verses 20 to 21, it's this. It's okay to read historical fiction. Enjoy it. Maybe even pull out a few biblical principles, but understand the genre in which it's written. And unless somebody can give you book, chapter, and verse, then understand that they're not giving you biblical truth. The second thing about the kingdom is the suddenness in which it will come. Let me read verse 24 again. For as the lightning flashes... 
and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Jesus is coming, and it's going to be at any moment. It's going to be instant. It's going to be like lightning who hits the sky, and, and we won't be prepared for it. I remember a few years ago, I was a teenager, uh, a couple candles less on my birthday cake. I was out in the fields working, and, and the sky was dark, but it wasn't ominous. I figured a storm was coming, but probably an hour away. I was with some of my friends, and suddenly a lightning bolt hit. And there was a metal irrigation pipe that came six and a half feet out of the ground, and it struck it. I think it was about 20 feet away. I don't remember, honestly, I don't probably know, whether the force of that pushed us to the ground or we were just so afraid that we ended up on the ground. It doesn't matter. We were terrified, and we realized we were 20 feet away from lightning hitting us. And yet, it didn't look like lightning was going to strike. From our point of view, we had no warning. On the farm, we were always told, when lightning is about to come, you go into the barn, you go somewhere, you don't stay out in the fields. We wouldn't have stayed out in the fields, except we thought lightning was at, at best an hour away. But it comes suddenly, unexpectedly. And that's what Jesus wants us to remember. He's coming, but we don't know when. He tells us in Matthew 24, 36, but concerning the day and the hour of the return of the Son of Man, no one, not the angels in heaven or even the Son of Man knows that hour. When Jesus was here on earth, he did not know. He knows now, but he did not know when he was going to return. And yet we live in a day and age where how many people have said, Y2K, or whatever, and they give us dates, and they give us times, and they give us events, and on this event, Christ is going to come, or on this date, and I think to myself, are you kidding me? Jesus didn't know, and I kind of think he has inside information, and if Jesus didn't know while he was in the flesh, it's not likely that some guru, prophetic individual is going to be able to accurately say, this is the end of time. Now, when I was back home this last week, on Wednesday morning, uh, my dad is a part of the oldest Bible study in the church I grew up in. And they're all in their 80s and, and maybe a little older. And uh, I always go to this Bible study whenever I'm home. And uh, I appreciate these guys. These guys always had my back when I was growing up. I think, honestly, they thought that the uh, halo around my head was a bit tarnished. And so uh, somebody needed to watch out for me. And I remember these guys would constantly say things like this. Jeff, you know, Jesus is probably coming back today. Which was their subtle way of saying, knock off the way you're living, the way you're acting. Because you don't want to be caught doing what you're about to be doing when Jesus returns. But Jesus never came back when he said that. These guys were always telling you, Jesus is coming back today. And I learned that they were really bad prophets. And I remember in the Old Testament, you stoned the bad prophets. That's the thing that went through my teenage mind. But now I look back and I'm appreciative because what they were trying to remind me is that Jesus can come at any moment, any time, 
and I want to be doing the things that God wants me to do when he returns. And when is he going to return? I don't know. Maybe now. Maybe three millennia from now, but he's going to return. The day I wrote this sermon, it was several months ago, a gal from Highland came into my office. Uh, this particular gal uh, is in one of the services today. I won't tell you which one. She doesn't know I'm using this illustration, but I'm not using her name, so it's okay. But she said to me, uh, I was at work today, and I was dealing with a customer or a client, and the man said something that arrested the conversation. He said, I have three months left to live. And then I'm going to work off my sins. And she didn't have permission, I'm sure, from her employer to share the gospel. But she probably had permission from the greater employer. And I don't know exactly what she said, though I remember her last statement. Maybe she cited Hebrews 9.27, maybe. It is appointed under man to die once. And after that, the judgment. But she explained to the gentleman that when he dies, he doesn't have the opportunity to work off his sins. That Jesus paid the penalty. That Jesus took sin upon himself. That he who did not have any sin became sin for us. That through him we might become the righteousness of God. And then the last thing I remember her saying, which she was recounting to me, is this. She said to the man, if you have three months left to live, don't waste them. How many months do you have left to live? You don't know. I don't know. Don't waste them. We don't know when Christ is going to return. The imminency, the any moment return of Christ will come like a lightning bolt. It will be sudden. Don't waste the time because Christ is coming. What would happen if Christ returned? How would we respond to Christ if he returns and we're drunk? Or we're high? Or we're lying? Or we're stealing? Or we're engaged in being bigoted or prejudicial or engaged in unrighteous anger or immorality or idolatry. We don't know when Christ will return. But he tells us he's coming like a lightning bolt. Let's see what else he says about his return. I want to pick up and read verses 26 to the end of the chapter. Verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage. They were just living life. Do you see that? They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, Fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, 
Let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. The first example is Noah. It's counterintuitive. It's verses 26 and 27. We all know the account of Noah, Genesis 6, 7, and 8. And we remember that the Bible tells us that Noah began to work on the ark when he's 480 years young. He finishes his work on the ark when he's 600 years young. So it's 120 years. I picture myself in the kitchen. I get up in the morning. I open the curtains. Oh, there he is. Oh, come on, Noah. You're going to hammer it again today. You're going to saw again today. You're going to hang another beam today. Oh, man. And life goes on. 120 years. All he's doing is hammering and sawing, and I'm getting bored. And that's not the point. The point is this. They're buying and selling. They're eating and drinking. They're given in marriage and they're married. They're living life. But they're not preparing for the life to come. And that's the problem. You see, they're being controlled by life. Rather than controlling life, they're being controlled by life. To be controlled by life is to live only for the here and now, not for what comes in the future. To be controlled by life is not to be empowered by God's Spirit. To be controlled by life is not to prepare for kingdom values and the return of Christ that comes suddenly when the lightning strikes. And so we have the next example of Sodom. And Sodom is a mess. And Lot is a mess. And the same thing goes on. They buy and sell. They come and go. They plant and they sow. They give in marriage. They're given in marriage. Life happens and they don't prepare. And then we come to remember Lot's wife. I, I always feel bad for Lot's wife. We don't even know her name. How many sermons has this poor gal been in and we don't even know her name? She has to go by the title Lot's Wife. And nothing good is ever said about Lot's life. In fact, we're said, remember Lot's wife. And when we remember her, it's not the good that she did. Why remember Lot's wife? You remember the account. It's in Genesis chapter 19. And in Genesis chapter 19, God sends an angel to come to Lot and his wife, and if I could put it in a modern phrase, the angel says, put on your Nikes, get out of Dodge, don't look back, don't look back, keep going. Don't look back, keep going. Don't look back, keep going. And what does Lot's wife do? She looks back. Why? She looks back because that's Life 
for her. She looks back because that's value for her. She looks back because she is more entranced with an immoral, unethical city than she is with a kingdom to come. She's not sold on the kingdom to come. She's sold on the kingdom here, and she looks back. And she loses everything. And then we come to the very enigmatic question in verse 37. It's a bizarre question. Let me read it to us. This is what the text says. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. What does that mean? He's still talking about the kingdom. He's still talking about the return of Christ. He's still talking about the moment in which Christ returns, that moment of lightning. Do you know what the prophets in the Old Testament called it? They called it the great and awful day of the Lord. Do you hear the descriptions? The great and awful day of the Lord. And that's what it will be. For those who know Jesus Christ, it's a great day. For those who are sold out, who believe in connect, grow, go, connecting in fellowship with one another, growing in Christ, going and telling others about the gospel, those who want to take the next step in their relationship with Jesus, it will be a great day, the great day of the Lord. But for those who don't, it's the awful day. It's the day of the vulture. It's the day in which God says, you have not desired me, you have not wanted me, you have not pursued me, and I will honor that choice for all of eternity. But it's not what God desires. God gave us the incarnation. God became man, Jesus, that we might seek after him. He gave us the inspired word, the canon, 66 books, that we might know him, we might know the gospel, and we might seek after him. He gave us the splendor of the earth, Psalm 19 and Romans 1, that declares the glory of God that we might seek after him. He put the law written on our hearts, Romans 2, including that idolatry is wrong, that we might seek after him. We see in Acts 8, Philip leaving a magnificent revival in Samaria to go in the middle of nowhere to a wadi where one man is reading a scroll who wants to know God and God reveals himself. We see in Acts 10, Cornelius, who's in Caesarea Maritima, the most idolatrous place imaginable with idols all around the walls. And Peter goes into it, a place where no Jew will go because one man wants to know about Jesus. And it's the great and awful day and he wants it to be great for everyone here. He wants it to be great as we share the gospel and tell the next generation of Christ. So what have we learned today? Let me offer a few final thoughts. First, we need to be very careful with 
those who are sharing about the end times, lots of prognosticators, lots of end times gurus, but unless their finger is on the page and they give you book, chapter, and verse, don't listen when they say, go here, or go there. Jesus said, have no part in them. Second, while we live in the kingdom of grace, prior to the kingdom of glory, we need to live out kingdom values. Kingdom values are all over the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Read the passage, and as you and I read the passage, we look for areas that we need to apply to our lives. Third, Christ is coming, and he's coming suddenly at any moment. And I suspect in a congregation like this, he's going to find some of you praying. He's going to be finding some of you sharing the gospel. He's going to find some of you in worship. He's going to be find some of you honoring your marriage. He's going to find some of you being incredible parents and incredible children. And that will be a great day. We need to be ready. He's coming. And finally, we need to remember it's not only a great day, it's an awful day. And we need to share the gospel with people who desperately need to know Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for the gospel of Luke. We've looked at it for a long time. Still have a few more messages in Luke before we go to Habakkuk. And we pray, Father, that you would take your word and apply it. As James says, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers as well. Help us to live out the word for your glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.